Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Matt Kiernander. Hey, Matt. Hello. Nice to be here. So on this show, we have talked many times about the wonderful world of open source, as well as some of the difficulties that creators of even very popular open source projects have getting funding or support to maintain those projects. And the irony that as these things become more and more popular and bigger and bigger pieces of infrastructure, in a sense that lots of folks rely on, the burden often on maintainers grows without sort of this concomitant growth in you know the support that they're getting. So I'm excited today to have Max Howell, who is perhaps best known as the creator of Homebrew, on to spill some tea about tea, which is his new thing, putting together some of the ideas around how he experienced the world of open source, how to support it, and how that ties in with Web3. So Max, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me here. So just to situate folks who don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the world of software development, and your first sort of big brush with creating a tool to solve your own problems that became sort of a part of the open source firmament, as it were. So I was lucky. My dad taught me to program when I was a kid. So it was a a long-term hobby of mine, but I never really considered it for a career because I remember I went to a career fair when I was maybe 15 or 16, and I saw the, the two programmers there at the career fair. And I thought, well, okay, I'll go and go and talk to them because I've been enjoying programming as like a hobby. Uh, I've been doing it on lunch breaks with a few like geeky friends in the, the school library. And I went and spoke to them, and they were the geekiest pair of people I'd ever met. And it completely, <laughs> it completely put me off the idea yeah. of going into it as a career. Like I was a, a conscious, self conscious teenager. I didn't want to be the person at parties that nobody wanted to speak to. So I did a chemistry degree and. One year as a, a chemist in industry, I, I became extremely depressed as I realized that actually I didn't like chemistry, that chemistry oh. was boring. <laughs> and that uh, this machine that I'd been like getting really good at and I was using in the lab, I realized that if I stuck with it, I'd be using that machine for like the next 10 years and like I'd probably put some papers out and everyone would be like, wow, Max has cracked like this really niche area of chemistry. Good for him. Right. So, uh, I couldn't do it and I quit and I went and lived with my parents for a bit and I tried to figure out what to do with my life and I discovered open source and I discovered Linux and uh, this just basically got me into the industry. I, I managed to jam myself into the industry by people discovering my open source and thinking it was good. I, I got a job at a startup in London and so like, yeah, I never I never like went the traditional path. I, I got into it via open source so it's always been part of my DNA. And so as a result, like solving the problems I was having for myself was always part of how I operated. And that's how I came to do homebrew. It wasn't the first piece of open source I'd ever done, but it was solving this particular need I had at this company that I was working at in London. You know, what really interested me, and I had read your Medium post on this, was the idea that you were frustrated with some of the tooling, you know, wanted to create a better mousetrap, as it were, or package manager, as it were. And so as you saw that kind of snowball and grow, you discussed at a very personal level, you know, not just from a software development perspective, the joys of seeing something grow, but also the difficulty of worrying about overdrawing on your bank account and, you know, putting yourself in a position to kind of grow up, have a family, support them. Can you talk to us a little bit about 
sort of that odd duality where you're seeing a project become one of the most popular, you know, you're counting your GitHub stars or whatever it may be. But at the same time, you know, you're wondering, how do I keep this going and how do I financially, you know, grow and support myself? Well, indeed, Homebrew was, has been more successful than I ever, ever could have imagined. Like it's the case that it's rare that you meet someone who's a developer who hasn't at least have heard of it, but usually they use it. I'm incredibly proud of that. And the truth is, like, when I released it, it took a couple of months for anyone to notice it at all. <laughs> and in that time, I was like, have I made something that's terrible? You know, <laughs> I, I felt that it was good. But, you know, that in a way, like, that sort of lack of attention drives you to make it better and better. And, uh, you know, I was working at the job in London, and I was doing homebrew a bit there because we were using it and then I was doing it at home and weekends and staying up and like you know I didn't really like do much apart from program at that point in my life it was <laughs> truly like the only passion I had I feel like uh -huh. I'm a little more balanced nowadays <laughs> and um eventually I managed to get someone's attention on Twitter and then it started to take off and uh over the next three to six months it was astonishing like how quickly it gained attention. And this is partly because of the way I designed it. I designed it from the start so that other people would feel like the same urge I'd felt to uh, contribute to this thing. I built it into the command, like brew create, brew edit. I wanted you to participate. I wanted you as a user to, instead of like how it usually is with open source tooling, like you have no idea how to get started and you go to the readme and like you can't even find like decent instructions for how to compile the thing or anything like that i wanted it so that as soon as you had it on your computer you felt you could get involved and it really right. happened like there's this video online you can find of the first three or four years of homebrew and it's one of those um diagrams that shows people's contributions and it builds up this tree and uh, it's astonishing Frankly, like you see me at first, just lonely MXCL, like darting around, <laughs> adding files all over the place. And then like suddenly a few other people turn up and then suddenly again, there's hundreds of people there. And over right. the years, like Homebrew is the, the open source project with the most unique contributors of all time. There is no other project that uh, surmounted that. And so, yeah, very quickly, it became something that I barely had the time to maintain but I found that it was by far the thing that I was enjoying the most. So I quit the job I had. I had two full-time jobs and I quit the one that paid in order to work <laughs> on homebrew. And it was, you know, one, some of the best six months of my life, honestly. I, I loved it because we were creating this community. We were creating a tool together, all of us. And I was meeting all these really interesting, talented people. And we were combining ideas and inventing something that was becoming popular and useful. But I ran out of money, of course, and so I had to get another job. And the truth is, my entire open source, well, my entire programming career has been one of cycling between doing open source and getting paid for doing other people's work. And usually when I was getting paid, I'd have two full-time jobs, honestly. Right, right. How does it make you feel as, as someone who's given so much value to, it's not even just the open source community that benefits from this, it's every developer out there who's using homebrew has directly benefited as a result of all the contributions for open source like how do you kind of feel knowing that you've put so much time and energy and investment and like personal risk as well into getting homebrew to the state where it is and not kind of having any 
I guess like direct reward or any like financial compensation because like there are a lot of businesses relying on these tools to make squillions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. Well, you did get that, that that one successful Kickstarter, but I think that money went to the servers, right? Not to you. Oh yeah, no, I didn't take any of it, <laughs> and uh, neither did anyone else on the project. Like at the yeah. time, people didn't really feel you could take money for open source. Mm. Honestly, like how I feel about it, like I, honestly, I feel fabulous <laughs> about it. Like I'm, I'm very proud of all the open source I've done. Homebrew is right. obviously the the most successful, the one I'm most well known for. And I, in many ways, I feel kind of privileged, honestly, like to have been able to have had that experience and co- to have contributed so much. Like, I'd like to think that I'm definitely going to heaven, done my part. <laughs> That's right. There's a heaven yeah. for developers. <laughs> I just want to get this entered into the record for the oral history books. You said it didn't really catch on until somebody on Twitter mentioned it. What was the tweet that got homebrew rolling that got the whole snowball going? I want to put this in the Wikipedia page. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to thank Josh Peake, who at the time worked at 37 Signals. Gotcha. So it was a Ruby on Rails kind of oriented influence, essentially. Yeah. And he said that when the new version of OSX was released, because it was still OSX then, and I think it was Snow Leopard 10.6, that he was going to install Homebrew rather than Mac ports, and he linked to it. And uh, gotcha. I'm pretty sure that was the moment that uh, I had all the forks suddenly appear. But this was before stars. So the only way you could like show your interest in a project was to fork it. And uh, it was even before pull requests. So I had to manually like clone other people's oh. forks to find contributions. And like the first major contributor to Homebrew, I discovered that he was doing like tons of formula, formula are the package descriptions in Homebrew. And uh, he hadn't even messaged me. He was just doing it for fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I message. this was, you could message people on GitHub at that point. They removed that feature after pull requests, probably. So I messaged him. I was like, can I merge this stuff? And he was like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> and then he, he stuck around. He stuck around for years. And right. that was very common. Like people were just like enjoying making the formula. And like, you know, that kind of gamification that I added to Brew was right quintessential to to its success and i often talk about how you you have to think about that aspect when you're uh designing your open source and if you if you want it to catch on if you want people to use it yeah you mentioned that in the medium post design it to go viral in some way mm-hmm. to have that yeah. sort of contagion i like that so let's fast forward in time here a little bit you know i think we've established kind of the, the premise here for the film and now is the <laughs> turn this is the second act you are not into crypto, but you're talking to a friend who is, and he's getting into NFTs, and you're experimenting with buying and selling them. And you notice something that kind of makes a light bulb at least start to turn on about how maybe open source, you know, could be better supported. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Like as I say, you know, my programming career was one of off and on, where like I really wanted to work on open source. But obviously, we live in a capitalist world, and whether you like it or not, you need to be able to pay the bills. So I, I'd for years, been trying to figure out how to fund myself. And I tried a few things. Um, four or five years ago, I started Patreon in an attempt to uh, fund myself there. But the truth is, I hadn't been that active in homebrew for a while, so my name had started to drip. And I spent six months trying to build it up to a level where it would you know, allow me to live off the Patreon. I, I didn't need a good salary. I just wanted enough to pay the rent. And, you know, it's America, so I need to pay for health insurance and things like that. And uh, I couldn't get it above like 800. It was really difficult. And I felt bad, honestly, like begging essentially for money. And uh, I spent like probably 40% of my time trying to market myself 
like I came up with ideas, like I'll release a new open source project every two weeks and things like that. And I was doing that. They weren't great, but they were neat little micro frameworks and things. But yeah, just it was too much work. And so I stopped and got another job. You know, GitHub sponsorship came along eventually. Uh, but I, I think I make $11 a month with that currently. <laughs> so it's not really much to speak of. I know some people have more success than me, uh, so good for them. But in general, open source in general is not funded. We know about it. Like Log4j was a great example from last December. It enormously affected the uh, the world of software. Uh, crazy how many enterprises were using this little logging library, and they didn't even know it, right? They didn't even know they were using it. It was buried deep enough in the stack. Something was using it, and something else was using that, like a deep dependency. And then you could root Minecraft with like a message in the chat window, and, uh, you know, they went on Twitter and like, okay, we're going to fix the bug because they were getting all this abuse. Like, people don't know that these projects are open source still a lot of the time. Like, the curl developer has a famous email that he showed where, like, someone was like, don't we pay you money? And he's like, please right. pay me money. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. These, I've had these open tickets for weeks. You know, this is completely unsatisfactory customer service. So, uh, you know, they said, well, we'll fix it. But, like, it'd be nice if some of you could, like, fund us. And uh, so they fixed it, and the enterprises said they'd fund them. And I, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure they still have no funding. Right. So the world's just waiting for that next thing. And like, it's also a reason that we need to fix funding is because the entire internet, like the entire software industry depends on open source. We know this. And these projects, they can't afford to like do a proper security audit. They can't afford to put the time in to make sure that these things are secure. Like every other month, OpenSSL has some major exploit. We need to fix that. So yeah, I've been looking for years and it was like mid last year during like the last crypto bull run. And, uh, you know, obviously when it's a bull run, everyone's starting to pay attention again. And so I've had a friend who's been in crypto since pretty near the beginning and he's been trying to get into me for years. And, you know, he, like, I remember in 2016, he was like, hey, Max, you could do Ethereum digital contracts, make $500 an hour. I was like, well, that's a very good hourly rate. However, yeah. I don't really find it that interesting. And that's the truth like, for me. Money was always not the motivator. Like I need it, and I, I like to have more. You know, it's nice to live comfortably. But if I'm not enjoying the work, I get depressed. Like just when I had my my career in chemistry, like I discovered it just killed my motivation completely. So I, I never got into it. But you know, last year I was finishing up another open source project that wasn't paying, and I was like, maybe there's something here. Maybe I can figure out something, and. You know, he was calling it Web3, and that was interesting to me as well, because if you're going to be confident enough to put a whole new integer value on top of Web, then, <laughs> you know, there's got to be something there. Like, otherwise, you're, you're being pretty pretentious. Right. And so I discovered, like, all the stuff I'd missed. Like, digital contracts are pretty interesting. I love the way you can automate, like, whole categories of legal issues and, like, monetary issues with digital contracts. And it's completely as long as they're coded correctly of course completely impossible to bypass and so i tried buying an nft and i tried selling an nft and it was when i sold the nft that i had the light bulb because there was a digital contract there that forced 10 percent of the sale to go to the original creator of the nft and i was like oh you know like that you can't bypass that that's that's forced there's no, there's no way around it. And like, it started me thinking about how open source is, in a way, like a similar kind of system where you have like a graph of packages and those original creators are like the dependencies of those packages and they go all the way down. 
Because like part of the problem with sponsorship models is they only sponsor like the top of the stack or like maybe the first two layers, the things people know about. And even then it's only like personal favorites. There are all these dependencies like log4j, you know, they're very lucky to get anything. So you need an automated approach that can like feed some kind of value to all the dependencies. So I found out my friend, I was like, can we build something like this? And he was like, let's see. And uh, well, we managed to raise so far $18 million to pursue this idea of building two things. Like essentially T is a package manager. It's my successor to Brew. Over the years, I have been keeping an awful lot of notes about what some sort of successor to Brew could be. But I never found the motivation to build it because I'd done it. You know, like Brew's enormously successful. And I didn't want to take away from that by diluting the market unless I had a reason. And this idea of being able to remunerate the entire open source ecosystem to make make it so that people like myself can work full time on open source, it added that extra value prop that made me go, yes, we can build this. And, uh, you know, using a package manager to do it makes a lot of sense because then we build up the graph and we create a usage straight away for that ecosystem. So it creates value for the, the crypto token. From the Wild West days of early SSO to the future of adaptive MFA, hear about the identity topics that matter from those actually building them. Identity Unlocked is a podcast that discusses identity from a dev perspective. Listen today at authzero.com slash podcast. Could you go a little bit more into how, say for example, Log4j just is is a home runner for this podcast, Log4j. Within the ecosystem, they're using T. How is it that they would get compensated for everyone using using their libraries, using their open source frameworks? So, no, I, I have to say this every time because people assume that basically what I've done is build a package manager where when you do T install open log4j or node or whatever, that you're going to have to like pay 0.5 cents or something. That was like my that. kind of assumption. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like it's, it's a logical like progression of what we understand about markets and economics, right? But I knew from the word go that if I did that, it wouldn't work. No one wants that. It, you can't change the entire nature of how open source is used. And then expect Mm. that to be a successful product. So I knew from the word go that I'd have to figure out some kind of indirect payments model. So that's what we have, essentially. So we haven't built it yet. We're building it. We have a white paper out. You know, you have to have a white paper, apparently, with these kinds of things. Although that's how I felt. I was like, Hey, Satoshi set these rules, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I thought, oh, do we need one? But we wrote it and actually really helped <laughs> like yeah. formulate the ideas more concretely. So I don't poo-poo them so much anymore. Uh, so we have a proof-of-stake chain, essentially, which the, the items in that chain are package releases. So every time you release a package, you'll do probably T-publish, but it's open source, it's an open API, the blockchain's open, so you wouldn't have to use T for this. Right? Mm. T, the company, and T, the blockchain are going to be completely separate. T, the company, will never take any money from the blockchain. We're not taking like a percentage of anything like that. It's a non-profit organization, but we're building like tooling on top of it to bootstrap it, essentially. So package releases will go into the graph, basically as NFTs, but you know it's just an immutable data point of some kind. And then that contains not only like information about the release, like the version, the, the package URL, also, the dependency information as a small like chunk of extra data in there. 
So essentially, whenever any token enters the chain at any point, it will go to that project, and then a small percentage will go to the dependencies of that project, and then it will keep splitting off until it gets all the way down. So every package in the open source graph can effectively be compensated. The more useful you are, the more token you get. So then it's just a matter of making sure stuff at the top gets token. Well, it's fairly easy as it stands because people typically do sponsor the stuff at the top anyway. But with our system, essentially, you will, as someone who uses open source or cares about open source, stake some value into that system. You're saying, I care about the entire software industry and making sure that it's funded correctly. So I'm going to put, like, I don't know, if you're a casual user, maybe you put 50 bucks, stake it in there. With proof-of-stake systems, there's periodic epochs, and a reward is generated for the people staking. It's like um, getting an interest payment from your bank, essentially. With our chain, though, we're going to split that reward probably 50-50. So you'll get 50% of the reward because you're staking the open source ecosystem and saying you want to secure it, you value it, and then 50% will go to the packages you've picked to stake. So T will help you with that. You know, you'll be able to run a T command and it'll say, you're using these 10,000 packages. Do you want to automatically state that? Right. I love this for two reasons. One, as you point out, you know, there's a bit of self-interest in there. So like incentives are always important. You know, you can stake it to earn your own rewards and to show your support for the project. And two, as you pointed out, it has this internal mechanism similar to what you experienced with the NFT and this could be used for you know any number of open source projects that are able to, in a way, capture that web of contributions and reward people. And that's a very complex thing to do to understand, as you pointed out, among this big tree of folks who may or be working on or relying on something. I wonder and also like if you could show, in a sense, to Matt's earlier point, who's using it a lot without contributing. Not that we want to like name and shame people, but like, you know, is that, would that also be a portion of this? You know, like, hey, you know, Corporation X, I notice, you know, you're making yeah, quite a bit yes. of use of this. Have you thought about staking over here at all? Well, I really hope that's going to happen, right? That's, that's <laughs> my goal. Like, I, you, you talk to normal developers like every day, like, you know, works for a company or works in their own stuff, right. and they, they feel bad about not helping out open source but honestly it's not their responsibility in my opinion like there's so many huge companies that have made like trillions of dollars and 90 percent of their stack is open source and yeah like usually they feel a little bit bad so they throw a few million a year at a various project or two but the truth is like figuring out how to contribute to all the open source you use i reckon they probably use fifty thousand different open source packages probably more but it's impossible for them to figure out how to give money to 50,000 different packages. Mm-hmm. But with a system like T, we've essentially automated that for you. So I'm really hoping that the community will step up and say, we know you use this. So why aren't you staking against it? Why aren't you showing your commitment to open source and the security and stability of the open source ecosystem by putting a few million dollars a year staked up against it. You've got some cash reserves earning interest somewhere. You know, you could be earning it here. I mean, I guess like, you know, we uh, just to timestamp this, we're recording this Thursday, November 10th. There's a lot of stuff happening in the news about coins and exchanges and things in the world of crypto. Have you thought about, yeah, like what token or stable coin you would use in order to just sort of ensure that people who stake and get compensated, you know, there's there's some feeling of security or safety there. Like that's, I guess one of the big issues, like 
I love the idea of stable coins and I love, you know, the idea of tokenized rewards, but the ecosystem has really struggled with trust over the last, mm-hmm. you know, six to six to eight months. Yeah. Like uh, crypto justly gets um, scorn and skepticism from most developers. And so I, yeah. I always have to like start with uh, my story of how like, I was similarly skeptical, but the truth is like anyone who's, Got on even vaguely interested in it. Sees that there's there is some genuine utility in that technology, and yeah, there's been a lot of scams and corruption, but money tends to corrupt, and this is like literally making software money, like digital gold. So yeah, I'm hoping projects like T will be some of the first that show that it can have genuine value to uh, some something that is sorely needs it. In terms of uh, what token we're going to use, like we're almost certainly going to be a layer two at this point in some capacity, like delegating that security to some established player, right. whether or not it be a stable coin or just some other independent token. We're still figuring out the details of that. Like We're going to start building it probably, hopefully, this year. I have a chief blockchain officer, and like, he's uh, very experienced and knowledgeable in this area. So I delegate most of these decisions to him. Obviously, my experience is more with general open source than uh, that. I love that title. Glad that exists in the world. <laughs> the yeah. old CBO. The old CBO. <laughs> I guess one of the questions I have, and I'm not sure how on the nose this is, is obviously you've cultivated a really good reputation with all the work that you've done with Brew and a number of other open source projects. And then coming into the blockchain ecosystem with crypto and everything else, like I feel like there's a high amount of trust for the work that you do. But as Ben's point, there isn't as much trust around crypto in in the blockchain so with your collaboration with blockchain folks can you talk to some of the people that you've got on board that might help kind of like establish a little bit more of a trust network with t and and what you are hoping to achieve well we're we're doing our best to uh present ourselves as uh, yeah this is a product of someone who's been in open source for a long time and he sees this as being something that could fix like a, a number of problems the open source communities have and i've had a lot of outreach from various other people who were in my shoes who were passionate about open source but never figured out how to like actually do it full time and they're very excited and hopeful about what we're doing i i get a lot less skepticism from genuine open source people than the consumers of open source so i really hope that's going to help us get going because people are going to be like using tea because they're hoping it will work for them and then persuading their user base to participate. And at the end of the day, I've also built like what is, I think, a truly wonderful new piece of software, the tea CLI, as we call it, the tea package manager. We released it last Thursday, so it is now out now. And uh, it's a different way of looking at like the open source ecosystem and how you use it. Like with tea, you don't think about do I need to install foo you think i need to use foo and i use tea to do that and it's um it's not the same i came at it thinking that dealing with a package manager sucks <laughs> like everyone loves <laughs> homebrew because it tries to get out of your way as much as possible but even better than loving homebrew would to never think about homebrew at all and mm. just be getting onto the the parts that homebrew enables and so with tea that's what i've tried to do T is not exactly a package manager. It's more like a set of packaging infrastructure that enables new things, entirely new things. So I'm hoping that those who are skeptical about like the Web3 component, what we're doing, will 
be unable to not enjoy T, the command line interface, T Cle, and want to participate in that, and then be brought around to what we're doing, which is a noble cause rather than an attempt at another attempt at a Ponzi scheme and things like that, which have been like, you know, this is good. I totally get why people are skeptical about this market. I totally do. So we are quite separated. Like you can use the T command line tool and uh, never participate in the blockchain parts, never participate in the Web3 parts. Now, it will, with time, be using that blockchain for its package database. And I'm hoping other people are going to use it for the package database as well. One of the things I've set out to do is stop this endless duplication of packaging infrastructure and, and data that has happened time and time again. Like Every Linux distribution does it itself and uh, every you know system packager. And uh, well, I also would like for things like NPM and Ruby Gems and Hyper and stuff like that to consider using our blockchain as the registry for themselves as well. Like we're going to be building out libraries and tooling to make that super simple. So that's a long-term goal. In terms of what people can expect from a roadmap perspective, any new features that you're like really pumped to launch in the next year, two years, five years, can you give people kind of like a brief highlight reel of what you're expecting to achieve over the next little while? Well, some of the stuff I'm most excited about, apart from obviously remunerating open source as a whole, but realistically, that's going to take more than 12 months to happen. So in a, in a more short-term roadmap, like we're going to have to test it out next year, so that'll be fun for sure. I'd love to see what people think of doing on top of essentially a set of digital contracts for the value of open source software. But in uh, for the package manager, we're, well, we're going to release an app for a start. Like I've often felt that package managers are basically app stores for developers. So we're, we're literally going to release like an app to do that. And one of the things I'm excited about with what we're doing is that T itself is really something that uses all of open source. It pulls in the open source tooling and uses them inside of itself. So I want the app to be something that that is a major feature and all these different tools can be used together. So Effectively, we're, I want us to become like a Zapier for your desktop, essentially, where people can like add scripts, we call them T-scripts, to the app. And then uh, you can just like open it up, click a button, and it can like do things uh, using multiple tools, taking files from your computer, ingesting them, dumping them out, running a web server and like Postgres, whatever. All, all the power of your computer, I feel it's like kind of underexploited, essentially. So I'm pretty excited about what we're doing there. And like the the idea of T-scripts we have in the command line tool as well. Like you can write a script, it can pull in anything from the entire open source ecosystem inside of that script. And then you can share it and people can like easily do rather complex things. Thanks for listening, everybody. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. I have one of the old blue check marks, so look for that. You can always email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with questions and suggestions. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. Or, or stake us. You know, stake us and we'll split it. We'll split it with you. And I'm Matt Kinanda. I'm a developer advocate here at Stack Overflow. You can find me online on YouTube and Twitter at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, I've been Max Howell. Thank you so much for having me on. Stanley, uh, Stack Overflow is one of the most useful tools that has ever been written. 
<laughs> and uh, you can find me at twitter.com slash mxcl and go check out T. It's at t.xyz and uh, click that authenticate button because uh, we'll check out your GitHub. And if you've got some open source, then you'll be put on the list to receive some T token when we launch the mainnet next year. Very cool. All right, everybody, as always, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>